We are up to Mishnah number six of chapter two. This is the second Mishnah in a row that's going to be taught to us by the great Hillel, the elder, the leader of the Jews during the first century, Hillel the Babylonian, Hillel the man who came to Israel after Herod's purges. Herod was, of course, the king of Israel appointed by the Romans, who was not really Jewish, even though he thought he was. But regardless, there was no dispute that he was a total maniac. And he went on a campaign to assassinate rabbis, primarily because he thought the rabbis were casting aspersions on his credentials as a Jew and his credentials as a king. And as a general rule, he was very paranoid, as many dictators are. And he killed his own family members. And he assassinated thousands of rabbis. And as a result, the land of Israel was almost bereft of scholars. And there was even a question as to whether or not to make the Paschal offering, to make the Korban Pesach, that the offering that is brought the day before Pesach, that we eat on Pesach Eve, the question was, are you allowed to bring that sacrifice if the Eve of Pesach is on Shabbos? The land of Israel was so bereft of Torah giants that no one knew the answer to that question. No one, with the exception of Hillel. Hillel had arrived recently from Babylon, and he answered the question and brought a whole bevy of proofs that indeed you are supposed to do the pastoral offering, even if it's Shabbos, and immediately the whole nation recognized he's something special, and they hired him to be their leader to become the Nasi. It helps, of course, that he was a direct descendant of King David, and in fact, there was a family called the Bene Becerra family. They were the Nasi, the Nasim. They were the presidents of the people. They were the princes of the, of the nation. They were the titular heads of the Jewish people. And they abdicated their position. And the Talmud records their act of valor and gallantry quite honorably that they were willing to step down. It's very hard to get someone to step down, to voluntarily give up their position of stature because they realized the nation needed someone like Hillel at their helm. Of course, Hillel breathed life into the nation, infused the people with Torah, Torah leadership, with wisdom, with guidance, replenished the ranks of the scholars, and began the dynasty, the Hillel dynasty of the Nisim, of the leaders of the people, which continued uninterrupted for more than 400 years. So, of course, he's one of the pivotal characters in Jewish history who arrives at a time where the nation is really floundering, uh, not necessarily due to their own actions, uh, but due to very hostile conditions uh, that they were faced with. And an incredible character, we've spoken about him in the past, just someone of tremendous piety, tremendous wisdom, tremendous Torah greatness. And he is going to teach us another lesson here in chapter 2, Mishnah 6. And it's going to be broken down to six different uh, ideas. Of course, they're always connected. But six different statements, six different aphorisms that he would say. Number one, Ein bor yerechet. A boar cannot be fearful of sin. Velo am ha'aretz chasid. An unlearned person cannot be scrupulously pious. Velo ha'bayshan lamet. A bashful person cannot study, cannot learn. Veloha kaptan, a strict, impatient person cannot teach. Malamit cannot teach. Velo kolamarbe beschorum machtim. 
Not every person who is excessively occupied in business and commerce can become a scholar. And in a place where there are no people, where there are no leaders of distinction, you should strive to be a leader, to be a person of distinction. So obviously, these things are connected. And it seems like he's outlining different statures. There's Yerechet, fearful of sin, which is the lowest stature. And then there's a chassid, which is the pious one. And then there's lamed to study. And then there's malamed to teach. And then there's machim, which is to become a scholar. And finally, there is to become an ish, to become a leader. And what it's telling us is that there's six different levels of, of, of stature and distinction. And each level requires a certain characteristic to unlock it. If someone is totally unlearned, if they're a bore, they're the, the lowest level. Because they don't study anything, not just matters of Torah, but really they're not – they're a bore. They're someone who is really not interested in any matter that's not immediately relevant to their base physical life. Well, then they can have sensitivity to be fearful of sin. To be fearful of sin means to be cognizant of your existence as a soul, to be sensitive to your spiritual environment, to your spiritual life. Someone who's, who has nothing going for them. They're not they're, – they're a bore. They're unlearned. They're – they're totally ignorant, not just in matters of Torah and wisdom, but even in worldly matters. They're not interested. Today, there's a whole class of people, primarily young men, who are called gamers, which are people who spend multiple hours, 10, 20 hours a day, playing computer games. They're totally immersed in a virtual world that they don't have any connection almost to the world that's outside of the computer screen, outside of the, the video game. Those people, I think, would, qual- would qualify as, as a boor in the context of this Mishnah. They're not living at all as a soul, and they're not cognizant at all of a soul. They're not even interested. Forget about Torah. Matters of wisdom, matters of ideas, ideas, uh, philosophy, uh, worldly matters. Not, nothing interests them, just things that just, just, just little drops of dopamine to keep their brain uh, alive barely. Uh, there, of course, there's lots of stories about people who neglected uh, the world around them. I remember there was a story a couple of years back about a, a, a young woman, a young mother who was such so immersed in her games that uh, tragically she didn't tend to her children and some of them even passed away. Uh, really sad. Uh, but this, I think, is a, is a good representative of, of people who are totally uninterested, certainly they don't read books, or engage in any form of new learning or discover their ideas. And and the Torah looks at them and would say these people are blundering their way through life because they do have a soul. They're not aware of their soul. They're not cognizant of their soul. But they do have it, and there's going to be very stiff repercussions on someone like that who doesn't address the needs of the soul, tend to its needs, uh, cultivate the soul, live a little bit with a recognition of something more important than just the immediate pleasures that they could garner from their lives. And what, what, what it's telling us is that these people can't even be fearful of sin. They don't even have the basic avoidance of spiritual obstacles, impediments, and spiritual blunders will happen to them all the time. People like this boar, when they arrive at the palace doors of Olamaba, of the spiritual world, they, of course, are going to have a really hard time because 
the credentials needed to arrive and to flourish in the spiritual world, they hinge upon how much effort was done to cultivate the spiritual half when they were in the physical world. So if someone in the physical world, someone in our world doesn't tend to, doesn't associate, doesn't relate to, doesn't, isn't involved at all in the life of their soul, then their soul begins to wither and to die. And then once their soul is pulled out of their body, the soul is effectively useless. And thus in the eternal world, in the spiritual world, the world of Omaba, their soul has no place because they weren't even fearful of sin and all they did was blunder. I read a, a comment that my grandfather wrote many years ago about an experience that he had that was very meaningful to him. He said he once saw an animal that was blind. And he says there was, it was such a evocative experience for him to see a blind animal that totally doesn't realize that it's blind. He says humans, God forbid, tragically, if there's a human that's blind, it's, it's, you, you could right away see it. They walk around with a, with a stick and they're always feeling their surroundings. They realize that they are hampered by the inability to see the world around them. And therefore, they're very cautious. And they always feel where they're about to go before they go there so that they don't bump into obstacles. But this animal that he saw didn't realize that it's blind. And it's running around like every other animal. And literally every place that it could bump into, it's bumping into rocks and it's bumping into trees and it's bumping into other animals. It doesn't see. And it's, it's just smashing itself in every on every obstacle. And then he says, it says, it made such a, it made such an impression upon him and it gave him so, so much room for introspection that really in our world, like our soul, with respect to our soul, we're, we're blind. And what we don't realize that we're exactly like that animal or we have a tendency to be exactly like that animal that's blind and we don't realize that we're blind and all kinds of areas where our soul could blunder, where our soul could be bumping into uh, impediments, that's actually happening to us. And we have to realize that, and this is, of course, a very Musser-centric attitude, just like the blind person is always feeling, is always cautious, is always walking with fear of bumping into something that he's not, uh, he or she is not, is not aware of so that they don't falter, they don't crash, they don't have collisions, so too, we should do the same with respect to our soul. And that's, I think, the attitude of what's here being told in the Mishnah. Yurechet, fearful of sin. It's not just if we could avoid sin. That would be great. That would be nice. That would be fantastic. If we could have our cake needed to. If we could live a good life and also not sin. If we could be happy and not get God too mad at us. That would be awesome. That's not what it's talking about. I think be fearful of sin, which means to actually take preventative steps to make sure that we don't have sin and we don't run into traps laid out by the Yitzhara for our soul. And if we have that attitude, a spiritual sensitivity, number one, uh, but also caution, spiritual caution to walk around and be very careful about what we do and to think about it and to think, reflect afterwards and to avoid mistakes that we already made once, then uh, we hopefully will fulfill or will get towards fulfilling our life mission of achieving perfection and withstanding the tests that we have. But if someone is a bore, if someone is totally ignorant 
to the, the idea that they are living a life that has meaning to it, that has eternal meaning to it, they can, they're locked out of this first realm of greatness to be fearful of sin. Now, the next person being discussed in the Mishnah is the Am Ha'aretz. And Am Ha'aretz, the Am means nation, Aretz means of the land. So generally, it's it, this is with respect to people that don't study; they're unlearned. And in fact, in 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 Talmudic parlance, one of the one of the most biting criticism that could be, could be conveyed to someone is that there are ama arts. They're a, they're a simpleton. It means they are a person of arts of the land. What does it mean? The land. It means they're, they're living in the land. They're not living above the land. They're not living in the heavens. They're not living in the spiritual realm. They, they're only involved, so to speak, in their in their earthly, worldly matters. This is, of course, a step up. The boar is not involved in anything, in any even worldly matters. They're totally everything that's in the intellectual and the spiritual realm is 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 beyond them. But here we're told that there's a next level called the chassid, called the pious one. That someone who's an amar, someone who's unlearned, someone who doesn't study cannot access. Now, they could be fearful of sin. But because they're not immersed in Torah, there are aspects of of spiritual life that they are, uh, that is inaccessible to them. So what this means is, is that you could be a good person. You could be a moral person. You could be even someone who obeys halacha who obeys Torah law, and even you could be a tzaddik. And here, a lot of the commentaries talk about the difference between a tzaddik, which means a righteous person, and a chassid, which means a pious person. A tzaddik can be someone who does whatever God wants them to do, which, of course, is a very high level. In fact, right before a child is born, the Talmud tells us that the child is administered an oath, which essentially constitutes what they need to do in life, and simply stated, it says, be a tzaddik. Be righteous, and don't be a Russian, don't be wicked. So to be a tzaddik is a very high level. It means someone that they're accomplishing what God wants of them, what God demands of them. But it's also, we're told that's not, that's not everything that there is. There's something called the chassid, which is even more sublime than the righteous person. It's the pious person. What that means, it means that someone is not just obeying the letter of the law, doing what God wants, what God asks. It's also doing what God wants, what God really intends, someone to change fundamentally. It's possible for someone to stay a human the way they are currently constituted. They got a body, they got a soul, they're tending to the soul, they're aware of the soul, but they're primarily living as a body. They're primarily living in the Ama Aretz. It's a nation of the Aretz. Their life is whatever's on earth. It's not about Olam Abba. And they could, they could be righteous. They could do all the mitzvos. And they could even know halacha. And they could be what we would call moral. But there's a, an element of, of, of life that they cannot have. And that is living in the heavens. We're told in the Talmud that there is a mitzvah lishma. Lishma means for its sake. Which means that there's v- multitudes of motivations that we have for our behavior. Good and bad behavior. Generally, we want something out of it. We act because there's something that we can benefit from it. So if someone has a business opportunity, well, they want to make money, so they, they, they follow it. If someone has a mitzvah opportunity, well, they want to do the mitzvah. Well, why do they want to do the mitzvah? 
So there could be a host of reasons. We're told every mitzvah you do, you get reward. Every single mitzvah, no matter how wicked someone may be in aggregate, God rewards every single mitzvah. Wow. I have a promise from God. I do a mitzvah and I get rewarded. That's a great motivation for a mitzvah. Well, in addition, we're also told if someone abstains from a mitzvah, if someone eschews a mitzvah, if someone rejects a mitzvah, if someone says, I'm not doing a mitzvah, or someone tra- transgresses a sin, we also believe it's one of the 13 principles of faith that Rambam delineates for us, is that people get punished. Well, I don't want to get punished. God? God's going to punish me? I'm terrified of that. I better do the mitzvah. Again, that will be a second motivation for, for mitzvah. Talmud tells us, all those motivations are earthly motivations. There is a higher level of motivation where you're doing the mitzvah not because you're going to garner some benefit from it or you're going to avoid pain from, from it. Rather, because God wants you to do it. And the way that Talmud explains this, this is, again, the book of Psachim on page 50b. Talmud says, quotes two verses. The verses, One verse says that God's kindness is up to the heavens. And there's a second verse, these are both verses from Psalms, that God's kindness exceeds the heavens, is above the heavens. So which one is it? Is it up to the heavens? Is it limited to the heavens? Or is it above the heavens? And the Talmud says, well, it depends. If a person does a mitzvah, if a person does a mitzvah not for its intended purpose, for some other motivation, because they want benefit or because they want to avoid pain, then it's only up to the heavens. They're living in this world, in the arets, in the land. They're ama arets. They're not leaving the atmosphere of terra firma, of planet Earth. Whereas it's also possible for someone to do a mitzvah lishma, do a mitzvah for God, not because they're going to garner some benefit, and that is above the heavens. That is someone catapulting themselves to the spiritual world, even though they're here. We're all here. Moshe was here also. But internally, Moshe was living in the spiritual world. And we could do that. We could catapult above the heavens with a mitzvah done in this highest and best and most perfect manner. That, someone who's not immersed in Torah study, that someone cannot access. They're Amma Aretz. They're the nation of the Aretz, of the land. They can't take a trip to heaven before they're dead. They can't do that. And, of course, this is a very high level. And and this, reading this Mishnah, it could sound very depressing. Like, Oh gosh, I, I, I'm trying to be a tzaddik and that's hard enough. And here we're told that there's even something called the chassid, which is the pious one, which is even higher. It could be depressing. But at least the idea is worth thinking about it. Is that what Torah, what God really wants from us is for us to change who we are. To stop being citizens of planet Earth, to be citizens of Olamaba. And even if we can't become full-time citizens, Let's at least get a visa and travel there once or twice in our life to, to, to at least take a stroll in heaven every once in a while to do something which is really uplifting, so to speak, to live above, to live on a spiritual realm, to have the uber-conscious. There's like the subconscious, there's the conscious, and then there's the uber-conscious, the over-conscious, above the, our, our conscious as a human, as an earthling, and live a little bit as a soul. Just a thought about how this may play out. What does it mean to be, to do something for this higher purpose for God, to live in the spiritual, to live above the heavens, to not be Amar, to not be an earthling? There is an organization in New York called Renewal. Renewal um, is an organization of kidney donors. 
but not kidney donors donate kidneys to your family members who need it, to donate it to strangers. And it's incredible that there's thousands upon thousands of people, almost exclusively Torah-observant Jews in America, who altruistically donate a kidney. And it's it's the most incredible thing, because the, I, I think in our world, there could be nothing more altruistic than giving a kidney to a stranger. Now, logically, it makes a lot of sense. You have two of them. You only need one. Why would you, why wouldn't you do it? And the answer is because why would you do it? That's, that, that's the answer to that question. But here we see the reason why you would do it. You would do it because you're a chassid, because you're pious, because you're living above the heavens. You're living for the spiritual world and for the spiritual world to save one life. You, it's like you save the whole world, but you garner no earthly benefit from it. So again, it, it's, it's, it's the perfect example of, of, of a case where the benefit you garner in this world is zero, is nil, Maybe you feel good about it. It feel good, feels good to save someone's life. But tangibly, practically, you gain nothing in this, in this world and you gain everything in the spiritual world. Are you willing to do it or not? And that really – that's going to answer the question. Are you a chassid or are you not a chassid? Are you pious or are you not a pious? And here we're told if you don't study Torah, if you don't have Torah in your life, there's no way for you to be a chassid. So it is a, it's a, such a shock that the people who are immersed in Torah are disproportionately the, – the overwhelming majority of – Altruistic kidney donations are done by a f- tiny, tiny fraction of the American populace. 350 million Americans, I don't know, is there a hundred, maybe there's more than a hundred, maybe there's, maybe there's half a million, not, not even, Torah-observant Jews in America? So we're talking about one out of every 700 Americans is a Torah-observant, maybe even less. The numbers are very small. Yet, in this particular area where piety is... I think most sharply defined, you see, in order, the majority of altruistic kidney don- donations in America are pe- people who study Torah. And here we see why. Because if you don't have Torah, you can't be a chassid, you can't be pious. Okay, next level is Veloha Baishan Laman. A bashful person cannot study. So here it seems that being bashful is a bad thing. There's a very famous Gemara in the book of Yevamos that talks about the three markers of the nation. There's three characteristics that uh, personify a Jew. Baishanim, Rachmanim, Gomli Chasanim. They're bashful, they're merciful, and they're kind. So here we see, it seems like to be bashful is problematic, whereas in the Talmud we're told that that's actually a marker of the Jewish nation. So what it means is that with respect to study, that is a an area where bashfulness can be problematic. If someone is embarrassed to ask questions, then they'll have questions that remain unanswered. And I always tell everyone, you can always email me with any question, and there's no questions that are ones that you should be embarrassed of. Email address is rabbiwalbeigmail.com. And I say that because I, I have never been, I've never judged someone by asking a silly question. Because if, if, if you have a question and you don't have the answer, you have to ask the question. And there's no reason, to be, no reason to be embarrassed. And I will say quite to the contrary. The questions that are usually viewed by the questionnaire as being silly are usually the fundamental questions to understand the issue. It's not the complex questions. It's the simple questions that are the most revealing. The complex questions are the least revealing. And I think... You know, in, 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 in journalism, uh, the good journalists, 
They know to ask simple questions, not the hard questions, the simple questions. And those are the ones that really shed light on, on the subject. And people who are embarrassed to ask questions, they won't actually study because they'll have questions that remain unanswered. And that's not a good thing. Now, personally, for someone to be uh, – Jews are not uh, – we're not showmans. We're not – we have a certain modesty and privacy and, and dignity that is couched in the terms bashfulness. Uh, we don't necessarily need to flaunt ourselves. There's a proper place for being bashful. But when it comes to studying, if someone has questions and they don't ask them, they probably won't get answers. If they don't pursue knowledge aggressively, they're not going to end up with answers. Therefore, if someone is bashful, they cannot study. And if someone is strict, the next thing in the mission, they can't teach. Because this is the, the exact flip side. Because someone's going to ask a simple question, and the teacher, who knows the answer, cannot fathom that someone doesn't know the answer. And that may be frustrating for the teacher, but that's not a good teacher. And I, I think that there's a kind of a, a big principle at, 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 at play here. What's the secret? What's the key to being a successful teacher? It's being able to break down the components of the lesson in ways that are understandable to the audience. And the problem is that sometimes people are too advanced and therefore they have so many precepts that are so well established in their own mind that can fathom the mind of the audience that they don't know that. So there's terms that they use that are so common in their field amongst their peers that they don't even think of breaking them down and saying, well, what does this mean to someone who's uninitiated? And therefore, the, the, the someone who's strict as a teacher or someone who's not under, not thinking about, about the content from the perspective of the student instead of thinking of the content from the perspective of the expert and someone like that, well, if someone's not an expert, it's very frustrating to have to deal with them. And therefore, the, the wisdom of the teacher is to be patient and to be pleasant in a way that they can present the material at a pace and in a way and with parlance and with uh, words that make sense to the audience, breaking down the precepts that they know so intuitively because they've spent years and years and years studying it, make that understandable to uh, to the listener. I know that I'll, I'm always fascinated by uh, computer science. And the reason why I'm so fascinated by it is because I don't get it. And every time I speak to a, like a, like a coder or people like that, I ask them and they start talking in a way that it doesn't make sense to me. And I realize that they, they cannot relate to someone who knows nothing and explain it to a way that made, that made sense to me who knows nothing. And that's a skill that a teacher needs to learn. It needs to, to, to see the, the material from the vantage point of the uninitiated and don't just say things about CPUs and GPUs. What is the CPU? Well, what does it do? Make it understandable to me who knows nothing. And that's what we're told here. If you want to be an effective teacher, you need to be patient. And you cannot be strict. There was a famous line that was told by one of the great Rosh Hashivas of the past hundred years. He said, there's two ways to present a Talmudic lecture. He analogized it to someone who's a chef. So there's two kinds of chefs. There's a chef that has a beautiful meal prepared and all you see as the consumer is the finished product. But the consumer has no idea how you got there. And they would say is that the skilled educator 
takes the consumer to the kitchen and shows the consumer every step of the preparation. How did I end up at this beautiful finished product? Don't just show me the finished product. Show me how you got there. Again, break it down to this components and step by step and training them not on your level. This is what we got and figure out how I got that on your own. Rather, going to them on their level and say, how could you achieve this same goal like me, step by step by step? There's a famous story in the Talmud, a legendary story about one of the great rabbis. His name is Rav Preda, and he exemplified this characteristic of being patient with students. And the story goes that he had one particular student that was very slow. And no matter how many times he would explain it to them, he wouldn't get it. Maybe the person was just not endowed by so much Intellect by God. But the student was persistent and the student kept on studying. So every day, Rav Preda would have to repeat his lesson 400 times. After 400 times or so, finally it clicked and the, the student absorbed the message. One time, there was a delegation of people who came to meet this rabbi, Rav Preda. They were there. There was a mitzvah that they needed to do. And the student's there, and they tell him, listen, you know, I'm teaching my student. After 400 times, I've finished teaching him. He gets it. Sit, sit off to the side and wait. So there's a delegation of rabbis that they're there to do a mitzvah. And Rav Prada ignores them and sits and teaches that idea to the student. And he teaches it once and 10, 500, 400 times. Okay, do you get it? The student says, no, I don't get it. Well, why not? Every day, after 400 times, you get it. He says, yes, but today's different. I see these rabbis looming. And I, I, it's hard for me to concentrate because I see them right there and they're kind of waiting and they're impatient and it's disturbing my concentration. So he tells them, okay, I'm going to say it 400 more times, but I promise you I will not finish with talking to you until you get it. And the kid was calm after another 400 times, 800 times in total. The child got it. The Talmud ends that in heavens they were so impressed by them they gave Rav Prater a choice. Either you can live for 400 years or every person in your Generation will merit all about which one do you choose? So he chose again, like someone who cares for others, that every person in his generation will merit all about. And they said, you know what? You made that choice. We're going to give you both. And he lived to four hundred years old. That's the Talmud. Just last night, I heard a story uh, from Rabbi Binyamin Karlbach, who's one of the Rosh Hashivas of the Mir Yeshiva. He spent a weekend in Houston, and last night they had an alumni gathering. And as a proud alumnus of the Mir Yeshiva. I participated and he told a story about Rabbi Shach. Rabbi Shach was the leader of the religious community in Israel in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. He passed away at the age of 107 in 2005. And he once convened a meeting with all the heads of the yeshivas in Israel. And a very important issue. And they're all there gathering and in the meantime, there was a father who had come to visit Rabbi Shach, and he sees all the rabbis there gathered, and he says to him, hey, he brought his son, his, his young adolescent son. He says, I have, I need, is it possible for me to speak with Rabbi Shach, with Rosh Hashiva, for three minutes? So he tells him, listen, there's a whole, there's a whole crowd over here. I'll give you one minute. So they went up to the side room, they're going to talk for one minute. 30 minutes later, they emerge from the room. And there's a whole group of all the great rabbis of the, of the whole country that are there called for important meaning. They're livid. This guy came in and he said, 
three minutes. You gave him one minute. It took 30. What happened? So Rav Shach comes out to them and tells them. He brought his son with him. And his son, you know, they wanted a blessing. What, what, what blessing do they want? They wanted a blessing that he should enjoy studying Talmud. He doesn't enjoy studying Talmud. So Rav Shach said to him, okay, well, why don't you enjoy studying Talmud? Because I don't understand it. You don't understand it. So he walked over to the shelf in that other room and he pulled out two books of uh, the book of Talmud Bab Metziah and he sat down with this student and they studied. And he sat with him until he understood it. And when the kid finally understood it, his face lit up. And he goes out to the rabbis and tells them, listen, if there's someone who doesn't lo- love studying Talmud, a, stu- a yeshiva student doesn't, doesn't love studying, doesn't understand it, everything else is secondary. Everything else is important. I, I convened you here for a meeting but this is even more important. And I'm sorry, I'm very tired. We're going to have to postpone the meeting until tomorrow. <laughs> and I think that just the lesson that he conveyed to those other Rosh Hashivas was worth their trip for them to know that the way he, the way he couched it, it says, Pekuch Nefesh. It's, it's a matter of life and death, a spiritual life and death. Someone doesn't enjoy studying, studying because they don't understand it. Everything else is secondary. And I think that Again, would fulfill this criteria. The great Rosh Hashiva, what does he want to do with a little, little kid? He has all these other, the, a group, a cadre of, of, of the leaders of the yeshivas are coming to the grand master Rosh Hashiva to talk about matters of grand importance. And what supersedes it? A 12 year old does a hard time learning Bab Mansiya. I think it really kind of gets to this point of if you're impatient, you know, you can't be an effective teacher. You have to go to them on their level and you have to understand the importance of it. The fifth le- lesson of the Mishnah is Not everyone who is excessively occupied in business can become a scholar. What this means is it is possible for someone to be involved in business and to become a scholar. That's possible. But not everyone who does it succeeds. Because when someone opens up their mind for other pursuits that are not Torah, their mind is going to be occupied. And it takes someone of tremendous ability to be able to juggle matters of business and matters of Torah in a way that they're maximizing their output on both fronts. Not everyone who tries to do that will do that. Now, it's not telling us to say don't make a living. It's not what it's saying. It's just saying realize if you're involved in Torah, in business, in commerce, that is a threat to your Torah greatness because Achieving them both together at great distinction, it's unlikely. Not everyone who tries to do it could do it. Hillel himself was a laborer. He didn't have people finance his Torah study, but he chose a field, wood chopping, that is not cognitively demanding. And again, I think it's I think it's certainly possible that uh, Hillel could have been a very successful. Uh, uh, quantum mechanics guy, uh, or a physicist, or whatever was the equivalent of that in his day and age. And the reason why he opted for a comparatively menial job chopping wood is because that would free his mind to not be occupied with anything aside from Torah. And finally, Hillel tells us, in a place where there's no anashim, which means literally men. Struggle, uh, strive to be a man. What this, what this means is, so the commentaries have two different ways to go with it. The Rambam says, Ish in this context means a person of distinction, a person of perfection. In a place where there's no other perfect people, 
You have no one to guide you, no one to direct you as to the proper ways. You should strive on your own to achieve perfection. Try to guide yourself. That is the Rambam. But the more common understanding of this is referring to leadership in a public setting. When there is no other leaders, step up to the plate and become a leader yourself. On the flip side, when there are other leaders, well, then don't. Don't try to say, oh, let me try to find a leadership role for myself. When there is a need that the, the leadership, uh, the pursuit of leadership should be based upon need, not, not based upon the fact that you want to create a platform for yourself. When there is a need in the, in the public and there's no one else doing it, uh, that's when you are required. But when someone else is doing it, you should study Torah. Uh, thus concludes this incredible Mishnah of Hillel telling us that there's six different levels. Number one, fear of sin, sensitivity, spiritual matters. Number two, pious, which is a more heightened level of spiritual sensitivity, living above the heavens. There's studying, knowing everything, trying to study at all. There's teaching, and there's wisdom, which is even a higher level. And finally, there's to be a leader, to be a person. Like, you look at Moshe. Moshe is, of course, the archetype of a great leader. And what was his attitude when offered the mantle of leadership for the people? I'm not interested. Send Aaron. Why? Because it's not something that a true leader is someone who someone really does someone who really doesn't want that role, and that in fact demonstrates their uh, their eligibility criteria for that leadership position.